Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. When Right Now Ish's production intern, Corey Antonio Rose, was getting ready to move to the Bay Area from Jacksonville, Florida last year, there was this perception of San Francisco and the Bay Area that he kept hearing about. I had friends who were like, oh, you know, that's gay Mecca. That is the gay city of the West Coast. And then, of course, Black people in my life were telling me about the Black Panther Party and Angela Davis and all of the, you know, people's programs that still exist today in Oakland. But as the months went on, the story of the Bay Area that Corey Antonio was sold started to unravel. And it started with his first time going out in the Castro with his friends. Just seeing how Black people were treated in that space, not only Black gay men, but Black queer women, Black trans women, it was like we were invisible. If we were walking down the sidewalk, we were expected to move. If we were in line, people would cut the line in front of us and the bouncer would act like we weren't just standing there for 15 minutes kikiing. You know, you get inside the bars and you're waiting 20 minutes for a drink as you see, you know, white folks come up, get their thing and go. And so I had all of these questions about, A, where are the spaces? You know, (laughs) coming from the South, there's this saying that, you know, Black people always going to make a way. Black people always going to make a way. And so I was really curious into how Black people here made a way. This experience is one reason why Corey Antonio reported a series about whether San Francisco and the Bay Area really are safe places for Black queer people. So today, we're talking with him about a three-part reporting series called Searching for a Kiki, about how Black queer folks in the Bay create spaces of their own. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind the scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, 
you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. My name is Corey Antonio Rose. I am a journalist and producer. My work looks at intersections of public health, policy, and culture. And I'm super excited to be here with y'all this morning. Coming from Florida, we always had these little home bars where, you know, it's close to where you live. You know, you kiki with the girls. Everybody knows when to go. It's sort of just expected. I came here and I was looking to explore. I was looking to meet people. I was looking to be in community with people I'd never met before. And I was searching for a kiki. I was searching for a good time. I was searching for a a nice spot where I didn't have to defend my humanity. You know, as somebody who's coming in with these thoughts about liberation in connection with Blackness and in connection with queerness, it was a shock for me to not see that intersectionality honored in the city. And finding those places here was a lot harder. I knew that if I was having this experience, I could not be the first. Because I knew that Black people and queer people, and specifically Black queer people, were moving here from all over the country, especially from the South, for decades. So, Corey Antonio, you spoke with different generations of Black queer folks in the Bay Area, and I want to talk about two of them, starting with an OG who ran the first Black-owned queer bar on San Francisco's Market Street in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Can you introduce me to Mr. Rodney Barnett? The first word that comes to mind is legend. Well, uh, I'm a Black man. Um, I'm gay. I've been around for a long time. I was uh, in the war. I mostly, all my life, I've been political and wanting to change things for the better, including my involvement in the labor movement, gay rights, civil rights, international issues. When Rodney moved to San Francisco in 1969, this was not the gay capital of the United States. There was no gay capital of the United States. And so he saw the transition and the creation of the Castro into the community that it is today. And one thing he told me was like, when these white men came from down from North Beach, when they came over from other parts of the Bay and other parts of the U.S., they brought the racism from other parts of the Bay and other parts of the U.S. with them. When you're able to get in one of these bars, um, you know, it was hard to get served. The bartender, they were always white. And they would bypass you when it was your turn to get served, and that would outrage you. They were asking for three pieces of ID, in addition to uh, dress code. You know, black people around that particular time were wearing hats. You know, hats were our fashion, and you couldn't wear a hat in these bars. There were fights that broke out. They were being harassed by the bouncers. Police would be waiting outside of the bars, waiting to arrest black people outside of the bars that did feel safe to gather at. 
They were waiting outside with paddy wagons and arresting black gay people who were standing around talking, trying to exchange numbers. So you always felt like you had to just almost run to get away from being arrested. And so there was this general culture of you could not go out. And that's how it was to be black and queer in San Francisco in the 70s, through Rodney's perspective. And it's experiences like that, right, that like it it sounds like motivated Mr. Barnett to create his own space and open up the Eagle Creek Saloon. What does he tell you about how it was different? One thing Rodney told me from the start was that he wanted the bar to be for everybody. Felt like we had an opportunity to make a difference in the community. And uh, I never expected the bar would be just for black people. I wanted everybody to be welcome there. The new Eagle Creek Saloon really functioned as a community center that served alcohol. We celebrated people's birthdays. When they had a birthday, we had food and cakes and champagne. We celebrated holidays. Um, We celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, Malcolm X, you know, we got a chance to celebrate our culture. Rodney was able to hire black DJs. Um, DJ Black, who's the Grand Marsha of this year's SF Pride Parade, got her start at the new Eagle Creek Saloon. We wound up having eight bartenders, uh, and we had women DJs, which they didn't have, at least at that time, in any of these gay bars. So we were able to provide uh, the entertainment that people wanted, and plus uh, provide employment uh, for talented black people that weren't able to express themselves in other establishments in San Francisco. That ability to to have a wider definition of who everybody is and who we count as a person who's worthy of having a human experience <laughs> while we go out is a radical shift from what was going on in the Castro at the time. Can you tell me actually what the slogan for the bar was? Because I feel like that also says a lot about what Mr. Barnett envisioned. Absolutely. One of the slogans that a customer came up with was a friendly place with a funky base for every race. (laughs) (laughs) And that was perfect because we wanted to let people know everybody was invited and welcomed there. In 1993, um, Rodney described how there was basically an economic downturn and a lot of the bars were struggling. The rent was raising, he couldn't afford to stay in the space. It was on you know, uh, Market Street, one of the most expensive uh, rental places in the, in the city. He lost the space and He's, he's told me since then, like, he's met people who, who've been to the new Eagle Creek and they tell him, like, that space was just so fundamental for them. Tell you the truth, last night I ran into somebody I hadn't seen in many, many years, and he realized it was me that I had owned the bar, and he came there, had a birthday party for him, and he came up and hugged me and just started crying, you know and talked about the need for us to get together because there's never been a place like that since then. I think in a way, I'm still searching for a space that's exactly like that. I feel like Mr. Barnett's story highlights how long there's been this need and this desire for Black queer spaces in the Bay Area and 
Also, how that need still exists years after the closure of the new Eagle Creek Saloon. But I also know you spoke with folks who are doing work right now to create spaces for Black queer folks in the Bay, including a trans woman you spoke with who helped create the first trans cultural district in the world, actually, right here in San Francisco. The legend herself, Miss Aria Saeed. I am a Black woman, Black trans woman, fat femme. Aria grew up in Pacific Northwest. She also was somebody who had people in her life who told her, oh, you should move to the Bay. Mm. You're different, you know. Go on to the Bay Area, get your life, see what's down there for you. I've been living in the city since I was 19. It holds a special place in my heart. But when Aria got here, she was working in the Tenderloin as a sex worker. Um, She was not housed, and she really had to make her way on her own and really build space in more ways than I think is expected of anybody. I wasn't always safe in San Francisco, if that makes sense. Uh, There were many, many moments, most of my life at that time, up until my mid-20s, I did not feel safe. Those nights in the Tenderloin, living houseless and doing sex work to survive, were also some of Arya's most treasured memories. Because for her, they were also the nights she spent with other trans women, cracking jokes, laughing on street corners, and finding joy in that solidarity. And it's other trans women who teach Arya about trans history in the Tenderloin and why it's worth honoring. The Tenderloin has always had a really heavy, sustained queer presence. And it goes all the way back to the 1920s. It goes all the way back even before that to public lectures that were given on homosexuality in the Tenderloin. You know, Turk and Taylor, for those who don't know, is the um, intersection. It's actually the center of the transgender district, but um, historically it's an intersection that had a restaurant called Jean Compton's Cafeteria. A trans woman who also was um, a drag queen, Vicky Marlene, um, threw a cup of hot coffee in an officer's face uh, when uh, right before being arrested, and um, a riot ensued in, in the cafeteria um, with, you know, drag queens getting their faces smashed into the pavement, you know, trans folks fighting back, queer folks jumping on officers. I mean, it was a riot. And the Compton's Cafeteria Riots is actually the first um, documented uprising of, of queer and trans folks in the United States. I'm curious what Aria tells you about why a cultural district. Why was that important for her to do? And how did it sort of come about? San Francisco has multiple cultural districts already. Those districts come with resources. They come with cultural preservation. It's a formalized way of really fighting against gentrification. You know, at present day, uh, the Tenderloin does have the densest transgender population of any neighborhood in San Francisco, but also perhaps the country. We have over 500 transgender residents um, sort of coming in and out of San Francisco's Tenderloin. The big why for the Transgender Cultural District was a way to establish economic security, cultural preservation, and 
and housing, you know, stability for these people who have had a presence in this community and contributed to the way the city has made money for decades. We also are doing um, guaranteed income for trans folks. During the pandemic, we provided cash grants to folks in need um, at the onset of COVID. And uh, we partnered with YBCA uh, to provide transgender artists $1,000 a month for 18 months. Creating those safety nets for our folks is probably the most, it's the most important thing that the transgender district is building right now. What Aria told me a lot about was how she has to go up against a lot of these stereotypes and a lot of these preconceived notions about trans people, about black people, about women, and how they all intersect with her identity as a leader. There is a double standard. We are triple audited compared to white organizations that may not even be audited by funders, right? We're asked to submit receipts for every single transaction. And we do, you know, it's interesting because I have those experiences. I've always, I'm always a step ahead. Aria spoke a lot about how Black leadership is not necessarily trusted in the nonprofit sector. And it it, forces, it puts her in a place where she has to do more work than other people that run similar organizations. Um, and she, and, but it also has made her a sharper leader because she's always prepared <laughs> for the things that mm-hmm. come up. And I feel like another element is just the obvious one is is money and not having access to that generational wealth means you have to work twice as hard for half as much as what I think you you and Aria talked about. In this case, Aria's case, having to fundraise to to maintain the sort of resources in in the cultural district. Absolutely. I mean, and and I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned out of reporting this story, these stories, was that the economy of the Bay Area is so deeply wrapped up in the politics and the social aspects of it. If Black people can't own space, then there will be no Black queer-owned bars. If Black people cannot, you know, move through the nonprofit sector in a way that is not entrenched in racism and entrenched in all of these negative stereotypes about them and the work they're trying to do, there will be no Black, you know, there will be no nonprofit spaces that really benefit Black people. One of the questions that you wanted to answer in the series was, is the Bay really a safe space for queer Black folks? I'm wondering if in your reporting, whether you found an answer to that question. Oh, is it ever that simple? (laughs) (laughs) I think that from a mix of my own reporting and then my own experiences, I would say generally, no, the Bay is not a safe space for Black queer people. But just like I said earlier, Black people go make a way. And so if you can get creative enough, if you can get cunning enough, if you can, you know, travel far enough, you will find the spaces that you are meant to find and the community that you are meant to have. Because with this much gentrification, with this much racism, with this much, you know, anti-queer sentiment that still exists in the Bay Area, there are always going to be these spaces. It's just they're going, you're going to have to work to find them. Mm -hmm. You are going to have to work to find them. 
And those pockets of joy are some of the most joyful spaces in the Bay, period. Because when you find them, you realize, oh, this is a room full of people who've been waiting to kiki for a hot minute. And this is the one day out of the month (laughs) where we can find this space and use this space and have it be ours. Corey, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us, for doing this reporting, and for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. And don't worry, I'll be back real soon. That was Corey Antonio Rose, production intern for the Right Nowish podcast. Part three of Corey Antonio's series, Searching for a Kiki, also just dropped this morning. Be sure to subscribe to the Right Nowish podcast and give it a listen. I'll also leave you some links to Searching for a Kiki in our show notes. This hour-long conversation with Corey Antonio was cut down and edited by producer Maria Esquinka. It was produced by me. I scored this one and added all the tape. Our editor is Alan Montecilio. Kiana Mogadam is our senior producer of podcasts. Gerald Furman is our podcast engagement intern. Jen Chien is our director. And Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. The Bay is a production of your local public media station, KQED in San Francisco. I am Erica Cruz Guevara. Stay safe and stay healthy, y'all, and happy Pride. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.